Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pocket Theology. Today, we are going to be going through a lesson that Martin has written on the topic of baptism. If you've grown up or been in a Restoration Movement church for a while, baptism is probably a pretty important issue that's come up at some point in your church. So we want to shed some light on it and give you at least Martin's perspective on the issue and hopefully help you have a better understanding of the topic yourself. Thanks for joining us today and let's get into it. Martin, say hello to our wonderful, beautiful audience. Sabra. Sabra. I hate that. What how is it that every week you find a greeting that is more and more painful for me? It's a gift. It really is. Not a good one, but a gift it's a nonetheless. Beautiful gift. Speaking of gifts, you've written a lesson for us about baptism. Or actually, I guess you wrote this lesson for your youth kids and you're adapting it for this, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's get right into this. To start off the top. Just in case anyone here is confused about the term, what the heck is baptism? Where does the word come from? What does it mean? What does it refer to in our churches today? Okay, so let's start off with the Greek word, which Jason is going to tell me because he's Jason and he likes Greek. Baptizo. Jason, what does baptizo mean? Literally, it means to immerse. To be covered in, to be dipped. That's how Reese would always translate it to be dipped. Mm -hmm. Man, love that man. But also all the way under. There's another word that means to be like quickly dipped. And this is like to go all the way under and come back out. I love Reese so much, but he makes me cringe so hard. He's so chuggy, bro. Hate that word a lot. And I love Reese and you're going to be nice to him. Uh, I am for right now. Anyways, um, so baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to be fully submerged in something or over overcome fully. Yeah, that kind of vibe. To be covered in a liquid. <laughs> it's yeah. used in pickle recipes like this exact term is used in a pickle recipe. So <laughs> it means to fully cover in a liquid. I hate that. We're all just holy pickles. I'm going to use that one. So uh, when you look at baptism, first of all, it's considered a sacrament, which different churches have different numbers of sacraments. I think the Catholic Church has like seven, right, Jason, our reigning Catholic expert? Yes, they have seven, seven, and most people cannot experience all of them because some of them are theoretically mutually exclusive. Holy matrimony is one, and then I forgot the exact term, but to become a clergy member and take a vow of chastity is another one. And you usually can't do both. There are some exceptions. Well, that's interesting. I did not know that, but uh, there are two sacraments in the restoration movement church. Um, But I wanted to find what a sacrament is first, because I think it's going to help us out a lot. So I went to Webster's dictionary and found the definition. Are you ready, Jason? Yep. Let's go for it. A sacrament is a Christian rite that is believed to have been ordained by Christ and that is held to be a means of divine grace or to be a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. That sounds really fancy. That was actually not a bad definition. Oh, I know. I've used it like five times. (laughs) 
Okay. I've used it like five different times in different lessons and such. So there are only two sacraments in the Restoration Movement Church. Normally, I'd ask Jason if he could guess what the other one is, but I've got a really solid theory that he knows what it is. Yeah, we won't refer to them as sacraments usually, but the only other sacrament that most evangelicals will practice is communion. Yes, the Lord's Supper. The Eucharist. I hate that word, but... Oh, I love it. It's a Greek word. It means to give thanks, and it's beautiful, and I love it. I hate Greek, so you've just explained why I hate that word. (laughs) So, there is a spiritual reality that we are joining in baptism, or that we are showing in baptism, and that's one of the things that I think is really interesting. If you listened deeply to the sacrament definition, it talked about um, a means of divine grace or a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. Um, There are two ways to look at this, and I believe uh, Jason mentioned that we were going to be looking at Martin's definition of baptism, which I'm going to call the biblical definition, like all good Restoration Movement scholars. Martin said, if you don't agree with me, you're not biblical. (laughs) goodness so the biblical definition of baptism appears to be a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality which is our death and resurrection with jesus so there's a reason that i think this and i think colossians 2 really shows this uh in verses 12 through 13 before we read colossians really quick no just so everyone's tracking the word baptizo that we get the word baptism from literally just means to immerse. And Martin is saying that baptism beyond just being dipping someone in water symbolizes a deeper spiritual reality, which is why we refer to it sometimes as a sacrament. It's not just about like cleaning someone off like, Oh, you got some dirt on your face. Let me dip you real quick. There's something deeper going on here. That's important to our understanding of baptism. And that's what he's about to get into with Colossians. Yes. So Colossians 2, 12 and 13 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So this is, there's an, there's an important part to this that I want to point out as well. Um, when Paul is writing this, he talks about this as that first step, kind of. He talks about when this happened. You did this already. You should be continuing to live a different way, right? So this is one of the things that I always think gets really messed up in certain churches. And sometimes we tend to see baptism as the final step in our faith instead of the first one. So There's a couple of stories that I can kind of throw at you and kind of explain how it shows this as a first step. The first one is Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, Philip, one of Jesus's uh, disciples, is traveling and he sees an Ethiopian in like a chariot kind of thing, like a cart, and he hears him reading from the great Isaiah scroll, which we would refer to as the book of Isaiah. 
uh, and he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53, which is a messianic prophecy uh, about Jesus's death uh, and how it is to clean cleanse us from our sins. And he's reading this and Philip just kind of like, I like to imagine he pops his head up and he goes, hey, what's up, bud? Kind of like a cartoon, right? What you reading? <laughs> Can I sit down with you? So Philip just like pops his head up and he says, what you got there, bud? And uh, the Ethiopian says, well, I'm reading this this section of Isaiah and it's so confusing. I don't know who it's talking about. And this is a real problem for um, Jewish believers who were trying to make it not read like the Messiah. Not especially in this time period when Jesus had literally like just been crucified within like 20 years of this. Right. And everybody talked about how he was the Messiah. And uh, this would have been one of those proof texts that people just yanked out and said, there it is. Jesus did this. Right. Mm -hmm. So the Jewish so there's going to be a really strong backlash over the next couple decades and following centuries where yeah. Jewish interpreters are really going to push for like, no, this can't apply to Jesus. And this is why. Yes. And Christians are going to be like, no, it's definitely about Jesus. And there's still fights today. Exactly. So um, he's trying to read this and he says, I don't know who this is talking about. And at the time, one of the reigning theories was that it was talking about the nation of Israel as a whole, because believe it or not, the nation of Israel had like a bunch of crap happen to them. Like if you go through your Old Testament, it's mostly the nation of Israel getting shafted. So um, and they kind of do it to themselves a lot. But yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, and Philip shows up and this man says, I don't know who this is. And Philip says, well, that's Jesus. And he uses this opportunity to teach him about Jesus and show him how he fulfills this prophecy and probably other ones. Uh, but we don't have all the details of this conversation recorded, of course. Uh, and the Ethiopian says, OK, I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus. And Philip says, oh, OK, well, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll get it get it figured out. And he says, there's a lake right over there. Let's go, Philip. Let's let's go get me baptized. Let's do it. There's nothing special about the water, so let's go. And they go down, and he gets baptized. But, Jason, this is probably the only time that this happens, right? This is the only time baptism is the first step in a walk of faith, right? Yeah, no. Saul, Saul, Paul, whatever you want to call him, all, right? Saul was one of the earliest church leaders, uh, but he was not a church leader to start with. He was one of the really mean Jewish people, right? Pharisee in training, or possibly a full-fledged Pharisee. He's a pit Pharisee in training. Anyways, so Saul uh, asked for permission to go to Damascus to go and persecute Christians. And while he's on the road, he all of a sudden sees this bright shining light with a person in the center of it. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? And Saul goes, Oh shoot, bro. Why are I'm you persecuting me? He doesn't even say my church. He says, why are you persecuting me? Okay. He's persecuting Jesus. My bad. But, uh, and Paul goes, her Saul goes, my bad, bro. Let me, let me take a chill pill. That's not what he says. Um, no, that's exactly what he said in perfect English. Yes. 
Uh, he ends up getting told that he needs to go to this town and find a guy named Ananias uh, so that he can give back his sight. And then Saul goes, what do you mean give back my sight? And then he's blind. So he doesn't really like see anything. Uh, he has his bodyguards take him to town. They find Ananias. Uh, and Ananias is given a similar vision where he's told to look for a guy named Saul who's trying to figure out where the heck he's going because he's blind. Uh, and he's given directions on how to heal his vision. So they meet up, and Ananias ends up giving Saul back his sight. And how does he respond? Acts 9.18 tells us that as soon as he had his vision, he went and got baptized. So we could pull out a bunch of different examples of this, but these are two that I really wanted to, to talk about. This is the first step, right? So... Our functioning definition of baptism is being fully immersed in the water, in water, not the water. It's not specific water. Uh, being fully immersed in water as a sign or symbol of joining Jesus in his death and resurrection, which is supposed to be at the beginning of your walk with Jesus. Yeah. That's our yeah. definition. Awesome. And just in case anyone listening to this is like, well, that's only two examples. There's the followers in Ephesus. There's people on the day of Pentecost that are responding to Peter's sermon. There's Cornelius's household in Acts 9. There's a ton Acts of 10. examples. And those are just ones explicitly mentioned. That makes a pretty darn good pattern. Cornelius is in Acts 10. Saul is in Acts 9. You're right. My bad. Cornelius's household in Acts 10. Um. So yeah, there's plenty, plenty of examples of this happening, of somebody responds in faith and they're immediately baptized. The only one of those examples who had heard any part of the gospel prior is the people in Ephesus, but they've been baptized into John's baptism. And when they hear the rest of the gospel, the parts that John's disciples apparently didn't have when they evangelized these people, they're baptized again because now they have the whole story. So they're baptized again. We'll get into rebaptism here a little bit later. Martin. You started answer. I think your previous answer kind of hinted at your definition hints at this, but just to like put it in a neat package for people. Why does baptism even matter? Like for some of us, it just feels like we're getting dipped in the water and then we come out of it. We usually don't feel any different on the other side. Nothing immediately changes for us. At least it doesn't feel physically like anything immediately changes for us. Why does baptism matter? Why should I care? Why should I get baptized if I'm a Christian? Why does it matter? So there's a simple and a complex answer. And the simple answer is what most of us probably already know. And it's Jesus said so. Uh, in John chapter 3, he meets with a guy named Nicodemus and talks to Nicodemus and says that if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, then you have to be born again. And then Nicodemus makes this really gross comment about climbing up inside of his mother again. And Jesus is like, hey, bro, take take a chill pill like we're not going to be doing that. And he says, not quite what I meant, bro. Nico, Nico, sit down, bud. That's I call not him Nick. Good old Nick. <laughs> but Nick talks about how ridiculous it is to climb up inside of his mother and be born again. And Jesus says, yeah, bro, that's ridiculous. Just get off that train of thought. And he says that, um, if you are going to be, born again, you must be born of spirit because flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. And then he explains that you must be born of water 
and spirit, which is the two elements of baptism. So um, then he ends up talking about how the Son of Man has to be lifted up, which is Jesus's death, right? He's up on a cross. He's lifted up. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much how that conversation ends. So there's also Matthew 28, right? Where he's giving final instructions to his followers before he ascends after his resurrection. And Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the father, son, and Holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded with or commanded you. And surely I am with you always even to the end of the age. So some of his, actually his very last instructions, the last things that anyone says in the gospel of Matthew is go evangelize people, teach them to obey and baptize them. Exactly. I had one other question that I kind of wanted to cover in this. And it's when I wrote this lesson, I asked a couple people, uh, what are some questions that you want answered about baptism? And one person said, well, how is God even going to know if I'm baptized? This is why this is where this or why I cover this under this passage. Jesus describes baptism as being born in the spirit. Jason doesn't have any kids. I have a daughter and my wife was very aware that my daughter was being born. And I mean, very aware. So um, is that how that works? Yes. I always wondered, Martin, where do babies come from? <laughs> Don't answer. Keep going. Keep going. So I think that Jesus describes baptism as being born in the spirit for a reason. I mean, first of all, we can just use the cop-out answer. God knows everything, right? But Jesus is describing a, a process that you would be very aware of if you were partaking in it, right? So I think that there's a reason for that. Honestly, don't know if this is the reason, but I like to think so. It's one of those things that I don't think anyone's going to call me a heretic and chase me out with a pitchfork and torch for, but it's something that I think, and it makes sense to me. So there is a more complicated answer to why baptism is important. Uh, and I have two passages I want to look at. The first one is in second Timothy 10 or two, 10 through 13. Second Timothy 10 doesn't exist. So I hope you weren't looking for it. 2 Timothy 2, 10 through 13 says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. This is where the focus is. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and he explains that if we wish to receive the, uh, what I call the benefits of faith, which is eternal life, um, a feeling, not really a feeling of fulfillment, but a mission to fulfill, a goal to our lives, and the community that we call the church, then we also have to participate in the suffering that's involved in our faith. And Part of that is aligning ourselves with Jesus's death and resurrection in baptism. So Paul says that that's important. Um, the other one, Acts 2.42, which if you went to Central Christian College of the Bible, you have it memorized because Gareth Reese made you memorize it. 
It says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you for the, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's important because it forgives our sins. But I also think this is really cool. The second promise that comes in Acts 2.42 is receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is an interesting claim. Because if you paid attention during last week's episode and the week before that, we talked about the Trinity and we talked about how the Holy Spirit is 100% God in and of itself, right? That means that we have God living inside of us, which is an exclusive claim to Christianity. Um, Other faiths don't claim that their deity lives inside of them and empowers them to live the life that they've been called to live. This is an exclusive claim to Christianity, which is really cool because there's, you know, there's some like out there theologies like transcendentalism where you can eventually like become God, right? That's not the right one. There's not some the right word. Transcendentalism, transcendentalism is a different of thing. There's anyway. some faith where you become so great that you become a God. And I can't think of what it is, but it was like way out there. There are some traditions within Christianity that have died out that hold to the belief that if you are holy and set apart enough that you will actually become divine in the same way that Jesus is divine in Orthodox Christianity. So like Arians actually believe that because they thought that like the father was up here where he was like real God and Jesus was like many God, like he wasn't as God as the father was. And they thought you could be like Jesus if you were holy enough and lived a sinless life. Um, so yeah, that's called apotheosis. Cure apotheosis. And, <laughs> and Orthodox Christians don't believe that anymore. There are versions of it with some modified details in some near Christian cults. Like my understanding is that in Mormonism, there is a belief that male heads of household that do certain things correctly and live the right way and believe the right things and are part of the Mormon church can become like Jesus. But I am not an expert on Mormonism. That's just my understanding. Me neither. But I still think that's a cool promise that God will live inside of us and help us to live the life that he is calling us to live. Uh, And that's also a significant part of baptism, right? If the directions are repent and be baptized and the promises are the gift of or the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, then it's important that we do both parts, right? Repentance without baptism is ridiculous, and baptism without repentance is just stupid. So that's that's my little, like, rant on Acts 2.42. But it's important because we want to be forgiven, we want to align ourselves with Jesus, but also we cannot successfully live the life that God has called us without having him help us. And if we want the gift of the Holy spirit, then baptism is a part of that. So that's the answer. So Martin, if, uh, and I imagine this is probably a question you get as a youth pastor, I get it as a senior minister that somebody will say, well, I was baptized when I was little or I was sprinkled as a baby or whatever. Should I be rebaptized? Now, I think we both agree. I'm guessing a little bit here. But we both agree the answer is going to be it depends. But what's kind of like if someone comes up to you and asks, 
Should I be rebaptized? Then like, what's the thought process you run them through? What kind of questions do you ask? How do you help them arrive at an answer? Well, first of all, it depends. What the heck are you talking about? Depends on what? If you had faith in Jesus when you were three days old? Well, I'm saying is like, if someone comes up to you and they say, I was baptized as a baby. Well, your answer to them is going to be different than if somebody says, I was baptized two years ago and they're 25 years old, you know? So like in some situations, I would advise like my wife was sprinkled as a baby and after many conversations and and I would I insist I was like, I really think you I'm not going to make you do anything, but I really think you need to be rebaptized and actually immersed as an adult believer. But I've had people come up to me and say I was baptized in a Baptist church and I want to transfer my membership to your church. So I want to be rebaptized. And I have to be like, whoa, let's talk about what baptism actually is and why that's not necessary for you because you were baptized as an adult. So, so that's what a... I mean by it depends. It depends on the situation. So okay. what kind of questions would you ask someone to help them? So let me first of all give you my fun fact. I was rereading one of my textbooks from my Baptist history class, and I found the... I don't want to say it's necessarily the Baptist view of baptism, but it is John Hammett's view of baptism. And John Hammett wrote this book that I read. Um, so it teaches that there's spirit and water baptism. And spirit baptism is when you place your faith in Jesus and you become a member of the global church in that moment, the group of all believers. But that water baptism is how you join a local congregation which I've never heard this explained before this. And I think it's interesting. I think it's wrong, but it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, it doesn't sound that dissimilar to what you hear in some charismatic circles, but I, yeah, I don't think that's a hundred percent accurate. So here's what, it, what I'm going to do. Uh, first of all, I have kids in my youth group who were baptized as infants and I've I've told them, you know, I don't I don't believe this is accurate. I don't think this is what the Bible teaches for baptism. And that's actually why I put this into the lesson. There's a specific question about infant baptism because some some of our kids have no idea why it happens and some of them some of them are very aware and they think that it's you know, they've been baptized as infants and they're good now. So I put this in because it was a giant area that needed to be addressed. Uh, but I want to share a story first. So uh, before we start talking about baptism or infant baptism, my stepbrother, when I lived in Missouri, him and his wife, uh, who lived about 20 miles from me, they had a uh, an emergency while she was pregnant. They had to have the baby C-sectioned early. And he didn't make it two days. Terrible situation. I, It was some of the hardest days for them, for uh, my dad and my stepmom, for their family. Um, all of us were mourning with them. But there was this group of people who were there that I can only refer to as jerkwads. Okay? They came to the service. There was a service at Rocky Fork. And uh, they came to the service, they came to the graveside service, and Maddie and I are walking towards the grave to join this graveside service, 
And these two people in front of me said this exact phrase. And I burned with anger. Okay. It's too bad they couldn't get him baptized earlier. Now, this poor little boy is going to have to spend eternity in hell. What? That's the most ridiculous thing to be saying right now. Even if it's something you believe. I get it. There are people out there who believe this. This is not what you say at a funeral for a two-day-old baby. These are not the words that come out of your mouth. Think them. Whatever. But if I hear them come out of your mouth, I'm going cool. to be yelling at someone, right? Like, that's just uncool. There's no reason to be saying this. If you believe this, okay? Perfectly logical view of scripture. Don't say it. Not at that moment. So, so I, I think this is like a point of theology that needs to be addressed. Because you're going to see this belief, especially in highly sacramental churches, and not even all of them, not not every church that practices infant baptism is going to hold to this point of view. So I don't think like Anglicans, for example, hold that if a baby is unbaptized, that they go to hell. But the Catholic Church is going to, at the very least, take it very seriously. And in the medieval Catholic Church, it's going to be held that if a baby is unbaptized, that they end up in hell. You see this reflected in not a work of theology, it's a work of literature, and it's really meant to be a criticism of the church in some ways and a celebration of it in others. But in Dante's Divine Comedy, he famously depicts unbaptized babies being in hell because this is a common belief amongst people. And he's Renaissance. He's much later. He's not even medieval. But my response to this always, and I think everyone listening, this should be your response as well, is Romans 5.13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone when there is no law. In other words, people can sin and be entirely ignorant of God's command and be committing sins, and those sins are real and do have consequences. But the full effect of sin, the guilt of the sin, is not held against someone who is ignorant of what they're doing. And I don't think this only applies to children. I think it can apply to adults in some situations as well. But it certainly applies to children who are too young to know right from wrong. So, and I mean, the term, by the time he's old enough to know right from wrong, is a, is a phrase used in Isaiah to describe a child. So there's even an understanding in the Old Testament that there are children that are too young to truly sin. We need to understand that. There's no way that God can hold to account a child who is incapable of knowingly sinning. That's insane. And that's why I usually I try to be very respectful of points of theology I disagree with. I cannot respect this one. I just think it's blatantly untrue and it's cruel and it's unnecessary and it doesn't reflect biblical teaching well. Okay. So I shared that story because it perfectly illustrates why people baptize babies in certain areas. Because they teach that Adam's sin is passed down from person to person, and that all people who have been born have been born born with sin, and that infant baptism forgives original sin only. So it is not a forgiveness of your sin. In my opinion, it's a bath. That's, that's what that is. Uh, you are bathing your child in front of your friends and family. So, and really your priest is doing it. 
So that's even weirder. But so the first reason that I always just lost our entire Catholic audience. Wow. I'm sure there were so many of them. Anyways, so the first reason that I don't teach infant baptism and I will not baptize a baby is because I do not believe that they have a sinful or a sin that needs to be covered up. And I am also anti-bathing babies in public. The second reason is because what scripture teaches is baptism as an individual's decision, not the decision of a family member. So, infants cannot make that choice for themselves. My daughter is 11 months old, and I still don't think she can make the decision to take a bath for herself. But, uh, there's there's a part of uh, culture in the first century that would say that a family would follow a father's religion. Uh, and this is a really loose argument, right? Uh so when Cornelius gets baptized in Acts chapter 10, which we talked about a little, um, certain theologians are going to teach that Cornelius and his entire household would be baptized, and that would include all of their children, and if they had a baby, right? Um, and that's, I mean, that's fooey. You're making an argument out of something that isn't there. Uh, and I don't have a better word to describe it than fooey. So... It's an argument from silence. It's saying, well, nowhere in the Bible explicitly forbids this. Oh, and there's this one situation where maybe there might have been a child in the room that was really young and didn't like wasn't old enough to make their own decision. But we don't know that the youngest person in the room might have been a grown adult. The youngest person in the room might have been a teenager who was old enough to make their own choices. Like and also it's a very different culture where the father basically made decisions for the whole household. And they were already proselytes before, or at least God-fearers. Seemingly, the men weren't circumcised and weren't technically proselytes. These were Gentile con converts to Judaism who were now just taking an extra step and becoming Christians. So there's just a lot of... There's a lot of guessing that goes into place trying to say, oh yeah, these are new converts to Christianity and there was a baby in the room and this is infant baptism and see, it's right there in Acts. It's making the text say things it doesn't say. It's fooey. It is fooey. So this is also the reason that the Old Testament has a lot of um, laws against intermarrying because different cultures would have different religions. And when you intermarry, you would not be more than likely keeping your Israelite religion or at least not continuing to be a believer of Yahweh exclusively. You might add yeah. on whatever God your new wife has. Yeah, so that's not immediately relevant to baptism, but there's there's a free exegetical detail for you. If you're ever like, why doesn't the Bible want Jewish people to intermarry? That's why, because it will undermine your faith to Yahweh. And we see it happen with people like Solomon. Exactly. So, so obviously we're not big fans of infant baptism. And if someone comes to us and says, I was baptized as a baby, do I need to be rebaptized? We'd both say, yes, you do. What if someone comes to you and says, hey... I was an adult. I was baptized in the Baptist church down the street, but I think I need to be rebaptized. Well, what conversation would you have with that person? So the way that this conversation usually goes is I ask them why they got baptized. Right. And for people like me, I got baptized when I was seven years old and I don't really remember it. 
but I also made the decision on my own. So um, I I want to do this one first. So if you got baptized young and you don't really remember it and you go, oh, I don't know. I can't even remember why I got baptized. Like maybe maybe I should get rebaptized because I have this thought pretty inconsistently, like maybe once a year. But I always think of it like this. So, Jason, did you go to church camp growing up? I did. Yes. Did you have that like those like three or four kids that got baptized every friggin year? So my church camp didn't do baptisms. They would like tell your pastor, your youth pastor, senior minister, hey, this kid wants to be baptized. And they do it when you got home. Oh, that's such a better way of doing it. But then what happens if you're in the car on the way home? We're not getting into that debate right now. No, we're not. But uh, I had like three or four kids that I went to camp with every year. And every year they had an emotional response to usually Wednesday night sermon. And they got baptized Thursday or Friday morning. And that's, that was it. Uh, It was almost like they forgot that they believed in Jesus this year and they needed to do something, right? Which I don't think this is the way to do it. If you forget that you believed in Jesus uh, and you remind yourself by getting baptized again, and then you forget again, there's something else going on, right? But I also, I asked this question because I've had other kids ask me similar, similar style or similar question. Like I got baptized when I was little. What do I do? Uh, Jason, do you remember the first time that you learned how to ride your bike? The first time I rode it without training wheels, I actually do remember. Okay. I remember very little about it. Um, Not an important detail. My parents gave me a phrase to repeat while I learned how to ride my bike without training wheels. And I still remember it every time I pedal a bicycle and it goes, the faster you go, the easier it is to like stay upright. Yeah. My dad said the same thing to me. Yep. So that's about what I remember. But if you don't ride your bike for decades and you forget how to, how to ride it, right. You get back on and you learn it. Do you have that same excitement that you did when you were six years old? Probably not, but it's probably also a heck of a lot easier to do. It is. And that's the way that I see baptism, right? The first time you get baptized, you were excited. You did it because you wanted to follow Jesus. You did it for the right reasons most of the time. Sometimes it's an attention grab, but whatever. When you get to the second and third time and the fourth time, right? It doesn't have that same level of importance. At that point, I would say you're taking a bath in front of everyone, which again, creepy. But that's the way that I see it for people in situations like myself, right? I got baptized when I was little. I believe that I got baptized for the right reasons when I was little, so I'm not going to do it again. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that at that time, I decided to repent, and my life has been a process of doing so since then. And I believe that I was baptized in the spirit and in the water. My sins were forgiven and that the Holy Spirit lived inside of me from then on. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe that that is the way that, you know, young decision making, decision making baptized kids should look at it. Yeah. When you get to older kids, okay, 
You get to like 16 year olds. You get to uh, 23 year olds, right? You got baptized in another church or something like that. Okay. The same questions apply. Why did you get baptized? If you got baptized because you went through confirmation and they said, now it's time to get baptized. Well, why'd you go through confirmation? Right? Because you want to follow Jesus. And if that's, if that's your reasoning, then do not let anyone ever tell you that you need to do the same thing again. If you did what you did because you wanted to follow Jesus, then you have the right reasoning. You have the right means of immersion, your decision, right? Then don't even consider it. Now, if you got baptized because you wanted to become a member of First Baptist Church of Ames, and not because you wanted to follow Jesus, then you should be considering it, right? That's that's the way that I see it. Usually when we talk about baptism, the goal of it, especially in Restoration Movement churches, is to get new believers to get baptized. But there is something important about baptism that we can see. There is a practical application to baptism or learning about baptism after being baptized, right? So first of all, if you're listening to this, you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus and you want to get baptized and begin that relationship, talk to your local pastor. Let them know that's what you're considering. Talk with them, right? That's the best way to continue. If you've already been baptized, right, then I always use this as a benchmark, right? So I got baptized almost 20 years ago, uh, like 17 years ago. Look at where you were and what your faith looked like then. And then assess where you are now. Uh, one of a one of the really good ways to figure out if you've been growing with Jesus is to list off the fruit of the Spirit and see if you've grown in those areas, right? Am I more loving, more patient, more gentle? Am I kinder? Am I uh, more self-controlled? Look through those and see if you've gotten further. If you have, and you've grown closer to Jesus, right? You've learned more about him. You've, you've built relationships and habits with him, right? Then look at what you've done in the past, in my case, 17 years, and start to ask, what got me here, right? What disciplines and habits did I build that helped me to grow? There is practical reasons to learn about baptism after baptism, and part of it is to use it as a benchmark of where you are in your faith. So that's my little um, dart at the dartboard. Cool. I got some quick fire questions here for you. So I'm going to ask you and I want you to answer like just yes, no, may maybe three or four or five words, like not long no. answers because we're a little over time here. No. And I'll give my answer as we go to. I'll no. probably agree with you on most of them, I imagine. No. So we got nine questions. We'll do them super quick. Ready? Okay. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Yes. All the time? Most of the time. Okay. I agree. Most of the time. Loving God um, will make exceptions where they're due. Mm -hmm. Yeah. God is a God of grace. Does a bat, uh, pastor have to baptize me or can anyone do it? Heck no. Anyone can do it. Yeah. I'd say any believer. Uh, 
what if the person who baptizes me turns out to be an apostate or in a grave sin or they didn't really believe and they leave the faith? Well, then it's your job to bring them back. Okay. Does my baptism still count? Yes. Okay. I agree. Uh, if I was sprinkled, do I need to be rebaptized? Yes. Yep. I agree. If I was immersed in a near Christian cult like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, yes. Do I need to be rebaptized? Yes. I agree. Is it okay to be rebaptized if the church requires it so I can transfer my membership? I guess. Again, you're just taking a bath in front of people. Yeah. I I hesitate on this one. I wouldn't absolutely say like no, it's a horrible sin, but I wouldn't do it. I'd find a different church personally. Is it okay to wait to be baptized so my family can be present? Yes. So I get it. I get wanting your family to be there. But that is not the biblical example. The biblical example is what Philip did, which was he found Jesus and he said, or not Philip, the Ethiopian when he was talking to Philip, and he said, hey, bro, there's a body of water right there. Let's go dip me. Yeah, I would I would strongly encourage you to not wait. Baptism is really, really important. So yeah, I'd, I'd recommend not waiting. If you really want your family to be there, most churches can record you being baptized, like do a little Facebook live or a Zoom call or something and your, your family can at least watch virtually. If I walked away from the faith and then returned, should I be rebaptized? No. I'd say no, but I wouldn't I wouldn't like not allow someone to if they felt that's what the spirit was calling them to do. Yeah. That's where one of the questions in my lesson came from. Um, one of the people I talked to said, well, my faith is significantly stronger now. And I had a period where I wasn't, you know, church wasn't important. Jesus wasn't important. And I didn't really know that I believed. Should I get rebaptized? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I believe the only reason you should be rebaptized is because you got sprinkled as a baby. So fair enough. Does the person who baptizes me need to mention the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit specifically when I'm baptized? I have no opinion. Okay, I do. I think the answer is yes. And if you asked me two years ago, I'd say no. But it is a trans... I mentioned this last week. This is a transfer of ownership. I'm baptizing you into the name. It means I am giving ownership of you to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think they need to be mentioned explicitly. I think Illinois is just making you a little more conservative. Maybe it is. I've been spending too much time with uh, with Joey. Anyway, uh, those are all my quick fire questions. So maybe we could do a whole nother episode on this if we really wanted to, but maybe in the future at some point. Guys, we appreciate you being here with us today. We hope this at least was thought provoking and helpful and helps you understand a little bit of like why churches in our movement have the stances they do about baptism and kind of how to think about baptism, how important it is to us. Uh, if you have any other questions about baptism or any other subject, please email us at realpockettheology at gmail.com. That is realpockettheology at gmail.com. If you have our numbers, you can call or text us. That's chilled too. Text or you can grab us after church child. if you please attend one of our churches. I said, I have a small child. Please don't call me. She might be asleep. Just text Martin. He only answers text now. Anyways, guys, thanks for being here. And we will see you back here next week.